the Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm with reporter Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Last year, she visited the Oklahoma State Penitentiary as the state resumed executing death row inmates following a six-year moratorium. Outside of the prison, she met Father Brian Brooks, a Broken Arrow priest who has been in McAllister for more than 100 executions. Whitney, what was Father Brooks doing at the prison when you met him? Well, he was standing outside of the prison walls. He was just in front of a security checkpoint, kind of a barricade in the street, and he was praying. Um, It was February. It was freezing, spitting rain and sleet. He was, you know, all bundled up with a scarf and a beanie and huddled in this circle with five other uh, Catholic men, a couple of priests as well, praying for Gilbert Postel, who was inside the death chamber and about to be executed at that point. Uh, He led the men in prayers for Postel as well as his victims and their families and for the state employees who were carrying out the execution. Now, we mentioned just a minute ago, this was not uh, Brooks' first time in McAllister on an execution day. Absolutely not. In fact, he was there just last week when Richard Fairchild was executed. And, you know, over the past almost 30 years now, Brooks has been at the prison for 114 executions. He's usually outside the prison walls praying, um, like I just described when I initially met him. But he has acted as a spiritual advisor to four of Oklahoma's death row inmates. So obviously, in those cases, he's witnessing their death firsthand from inside a a viewing room where uh, the inmates family attorneys and some media witnesses also sit. Now, tell us a little more about Father Brooks. Who is he outside of uh, this role he takes at the prison? Well, he's an Oklahoma native. He grew up in Oklahoma City and, and was raised Methodist, actually. It wasn't until college that he found his Catholic faith and felt the pull to become a priest. Uh, now, he's a priest currently at the Church of St. Benedict in Broken Arrow up near Tulsa, He's 60 years old, uh, has white hair and glasses. He speaks very quickly, but he's very soft-spoken. And, you know, he has this calming presence, which obviously lends itself to the work that he does at the prison. And, you know, when he's not in church uh, or in McAllister, he tells me he really loves to garden. Well, what what prompted him to start doing this to, to attend all these executions? Well, his mentor, Father Donald Brooks, no, they are not related, even though they share a last name. Uh, He had been holding these prayer vigils outside the prison for many years as an act of protest and also of prayer. Uh, Don became the Catholic chaplain at the penitentiary back in the 60s, and he negotiated a a deadly riot there in the 70s. So he was pretty well known um, in Catholic circles and really across the state for his work with inmates. So after Father Brian Brooks um, became a priest, Don invited him to the prayer vigils. And when Don became too ill to continue them, Brooks took over. Now, uh, Father Brooks has been there for 
almost every execution since the mid-90s. When you talk to him, were there a few that really stood out for him after all those? Absolutely. Um, one that he he mentioned to me several times is uh, was the execution of Mark Fowler back in 2001. That was an especially difficult one for Brooks because Fowler was the nephew of a fellow priest that Brooks had met in seminary. So, you know, he knew this family personally, and he was asked to be a spiritual advisor for Fowler. Um, and, you know, he he told me at that execution that he remembers watching Fowler's dad, the inmate's dad who was about to be killed, consoling a guard who was part of the execution at the prison. Um, and that moment has really stuck with him. He, of course, has been around for things like Julius Jones' uh, case where he was, you know, a couple hours away from being executed when the governor announced that he was commuting Jones' sentence. But Brooks was on his way to McAllister when that was announced, so he didn't actually make it to the prison that day. The one, though, that that really stands out the most to him after all these years is the first one that he attended. Uh, that was when Roger Dale Stafford was executed in 1995. A lot of people might remember the Oklahoma City Sirloin Steakhouse murders back in the 70s. Stafford marched six employees into a freezer and executed them and had killed a, a family of three near Purcell just a couple weeks before that. Um, so a large crowd of people showed up in support of that execution in the 90s. And when he was put to death after midnight that night, the crowd erupted in cheers. And Brooks said that really, um, that moment really stuck with him. It made him feel very numb. And that experience is one of the reasons that he continues to go back. Now, after, you know, gosh, 30 years or so of doing this, why does he continue? Well, for one, Brooks stands in opposition to the death penalty. He is there to make a statement and to take a position. The Catholic Church seeks to abolish capital punishment altogether. Um, they strengthened their language on, on the issue in 2018. Um, though a poll, a recent poll from last year shows that 60% of Catholics still say the death penalty is morally justifiable when someone commits a crime like murder. So he's obviously got a, a lot of work to do in that arena. Partly, he also feels a duty to be there. He believes that this is a calling from God for him to be there. So there is some obedience in, in these actions as well. Um, but I think the thing that that really keeps him going back, even when he feels discouraged after all this time, is that he's bringing he feels he's bringing some dignity to one of the most undignified things imaginable. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney Bryan's story about Father Brooks and all her other investigative work on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. In the latest edition of her Education Watch newsletter, Jennifer wrote about a Harding Charter prep student in Oklahoma City whose complaint was heard by the State Board of Education. The student, a senior named Ann, says the school isn't allowing her to take college classes through concurrent enrollment. Jennifer, what do you know about the student and her situation? Well, as you said, her name's Anne. She goes to Harding Charter Prep, which is a high-performing charter school in Oklahoma City. 
And she's a senior, and she has asked her um, her school to allow her to take some college classes through concurrent enrollment in the spring of her senior year. And as of right now, the principal and also their school board has denied that request. There is a state law that uh, Ann says backs up her position, right? That's right. There is a state law that says school districts cannot prohibit a student who meets the requirements from taking concurrent enrollment. So they can't, they can't stop them if they meet the requirements. It's a requirement that is kind of at the heart of this issue. Um, the school requires students to um, ask for concurrent enrollment in their junior year. Um, the law or the, the uh, requirements that are set under the law by the state regents say that they have to have that letter signed um, by their senior year. Now, the school's attorney is arguing that it's actually they have to meet the requirements by their senior year, not have the letter. So there's some legal finagling happening right now. So what what are the schools required to do under the law? Well, I mean, the main the bottom line is they cannot stop a student from doing concurrent enrollment if they meet the requirements. That's what the law says. So why did they deny Ann's request in this case? So Harding Charter Prep requires students to, um, in their junior year, say, I want to take concurrent enrollment. And they do it early because Harding requires 28 credits to graduate, which is above the state minimum of 23. So really what they're doing is they've got these in place so that students will graduate, right? I mean, what good is it if you take college classes, but then you don't graduate high school? So this jumped uh, really quickly from the local school board to the state school board. That's right. It was um, Monday night, um, and then three days later, it was being heard by the state school board. And uh, why did the state school board consider this? Seems like, you know, the, the local school board had already addressed it. That's right. It was somewhat surprising, and what I found out was the student emailed them. She asked them to hear her um, her complaint, and they put it on the agenda. Did they take any action? Not yet. Um, it was not an action item in the November meeting, and so they talked about it. Um, some of the, the state board members, just judging by their comments, really seemed to side with the student. Like, they really wanted to um, clear the way for her to take concurrent enrollment, but they couldn't do anything at that meeting. I do expect it if it's not resolved, it should come back up. Uh, you spoke with the superintendent at Harding Charter Prep recently. What did he have to say? So a couple of things. He said he was not surprised that the state board took it up. He said, you know, look, I understand it's their job to make sure that schools are following the law. And that's the issue here. Um, he wants to be in compliance with the law. He was surprised by how quickly it ended up in front of the state board um, he said he was already in talks with the State Department of Ed, both before and continuing after that meeting, to try to um, figure out what the law is actually saying, make sure that the school complies with the law, but also he wants to make sure that they can keep their high standards, um, which are those 28 credit hours above what the state requires. All right, well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch.
Ari Fife covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. She recently wrote a story highlighting the lack of financial support for Oklahomans who are providing unpaid care for relatives. Ari, tell me about the state's family caregivers. How many are there and how important is their work? The State Department of Human Services isn't collecting a total of how many family caregivers there are, meaning that AARP is the main entity that is. In 2017, they estimated that there were 530,000 family caregivers, but there hasn't been a more recent count since. Um, Even though the work of family caregivers is largely unpaid, it still has a significant economic impact. AARP estimated in 2017 that their work is worth about $5.8 billion. So why don't we have a better estimate for how many people fall into that category? So there are a couple different issues um, with collecting data, one of them being that creating a total relies heavily on self-identification, and many people who care for a relative wouldn't describe what they do as caregiving. Many caregivers also fly under the radar in the eyes of the state because they don't use state resources offered to caregivers. And the number of caregivers is also constantly shifting as new people need care. Now, when you were reporting, you met a caregiver named Frances Johnson. Tell us about her situation. Yeah, so Frances is a woman who lives in northeast Oklahoma City, and she's been caring for her mom, Maybelle, for about 10 years. The two planned a trip to Las Vegas in 2012 to celebrate Maybelle's birthday, and while they were there, Maybelle had the first of a series of strokes. That first medical emergency thrust Frances into the world of caregiving, and she ended up taking about three years off from work to care for Maybelle initially, living off of retirement savings. But she completely drained her savings account over that period and had to return to work briefly. She officially retired early in 2020, and she's been caregiving full-time since then. So what are some of these caregivers' biggest needs? So the Department of Human Services did a survey of caregivers in 2016 that indicated that some of the biggest needs were the ability to take a break from caregiving, legal assistance, and mental health support. Another big need, though, is financial assistance. Well, there are many resources to address that particular need, are there? Is, is anybody doing anything to try to change that? So Representative Tammy West and Senator Frank Simpson authored the Caring for Caregivers Act, which was introduced in the House in March. And it would have created a credit that would have cut caregivers' income tax by half of the amount they spent on caregiving. It would have covered up to $2,000 or $3,000 if the family member they were caring for was a veteran or had dementia. And what ended up uh, happening with that bill? So. A tax credit had strong support among voters that were polled by AARP, and the bill passed through the House overwhelmingly. But even though it was assigned to the Senate Finance Committee, it never received a hearing there, and it eventually died. I reached out to the Finance Committee Chair Dave Rader multiple times, but he didn't respond to my requests for interviews. 
um, AARP and the Oklahoma Silver-Haired Legislature are two groups that were working with the two legislators to write the legislation, and they hope to work with legislators to reintroduce the bill next legislative session. So where does that leave uh, Frances and her mom? So... Over the past decade, Francis has built up a really deep knowledge base about resources provided by nonprofits, which are usually free or discounted. And because of that, she's in a much better financial situation. And so she said she and Maybell would be able to survive even if the tax credit didn't pass. Um, but she admits that when she first started caregiving, she spent a lot of money that she didn't need to because she didn't know who to turn to. And so she hopes to find she hopes to help caregivers who are in the same situation now. And she's taking classes through UCO and a nonprofit called Progress OKC to develop a vision for her own business called A Link to Connect, through which she'd be able to consult with clients to help them build a similar resource base. All right, well, thanks, Ari. You can read uh, all of Ari Fife's coverage of race and equity at our website, OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, take just a moment, please, and visit us at oklahomawatch.org. Find our support page and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched. And if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.